Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John Riding dropping by the studio here in New York, RDQ in economics, chief economist and founding partner. So, John, that hasn't happened yet. It's the assumption of many, many individuals that follow the politics much closer than you and I. I'm just trying to understand what would happen if that headline crossed the Bloomberg. How would the market respond to that scenario? I, I don't think there's necessarily much that's going to it's going to have to respond to at this point because that doesn't immediately start building the wall. It doesn't do anything other than it, this will eventually get kicked to the Supreme Court. And I think there'll be, you know, however long that takes to play out, this may become a, a mechanism by which both sides get a win. Because if he's declare, if the president declares it's a national state of emergency, he can do it, then there's no need to keep the government closed. So presumably uh, that would then pave the way to passing some kind of budget agreements, getting the departments uh, reopened. But by the same token, the wall's not going to be uh, begun to be built because there has there will have to be a test of, well, it's the Congress's job to determine the budget. So the president's diverting funds. Can he legally do it? He says he can. Congress says he can't. The Supreme Court has to decide. We're used to volatility in Washington, D.C. We're used to gridlock in the nation's capital. Is this different at all to what we've experienced in previous administrations? For market participants, will they look at this any differently to these situations we've seen in years gone by? No, and government shutdowns have never been a really big thing for the market. The question is, what is the policy that needs to be resolved that drove the government to a shutdown in the past? It might have been a fiscal cliff relating to tax increases. Um, This is, in a sense... A much smaller economic issue. So you know, you know, I I, I think that uh, after a while, maybe there's a cumulative damage. People maybe talk about a tenth of percent off yeah. GDP. Yeah. We're not talking huge numbers. It's much more about executive privilege and politics, I think, than it is about economics. We have had economic growth. You predicted this. You've always been an optimist on the American experiment. Are we having these tensions because all the growth went to too few people? Well, look, we cannot deny that distributional considerations are now very important politically, um, and that has been a a theme in economics uh, and a theme in politics. But I think, put the question, in the depths of the financial crisis and the Great Recession, if someone said, well, the economy is going to enjoy the longest expansion in U.S. economic history coming out of this, we would have taken growth (laughs) over where we were. So, you know, the economy has delivered the lowest unemployment rate now in 50 years. More people are coming back to the labor force. Inflation is relatively low. You know, compare the situation to Europe, uh, and the U.S. is in a far, far stronger place 
despite uh, all of the dysfunctionality yeah. uh, inside of the Beltway. You know, John, I would totally agree with that as well. Looking at the economic data at the moment, there's been a big worry about what would happen with the global slowdown and how it would spill over into the U.S. economy. Initial jobless claims, that's a real-time indicator of this economy. Still really, really low, multi-decade lows at the moment, John. Any sign of weakness anywhere that you're concerned about at the moment? Well, there is weakness in areas like housing, for yeah. example, and that's one area where the government shutdown may exacerbate the weakness because of the role of uh, the government in uh, guaranteeing mortgages, and so there may be you know, mortgage applications that get delayed and there's some disruption there. But the point is an economy at full employment can't keep growing on all fronts. It's mathematically impossible. So interest rates are the mechanism that reallocates resources within the economy. So the Fed, until recently, has been on a path of steadily raising interest rates. When you raise interest rates, you're supposed to tighten financial conditions. When you tighten financial <laughs> conditions, some parts of the economy are supposed to slow. There should be no surprises here. Ah, but John, for the first few years of the tightening cycle, financial conditions actually loosened. Exactly. Gold prices are higher than when the Fed first started raising interest rates. The dollar really hasn't done very much. The equity market's a lot higher. And again, people, you know, between where we were the early October and where we got to on Christmas Eve, the drop in the equity market to a level that none of us would have imagined going yeah. back 10 years ago, that the economy could have gotten to in this time frame. So here's the good news. The committee at the Federal Reserve seemed to be on the same page. Patience. Wait and see. And I think the inflation data gives them the capacity to do that. Inflation expectations have come in. CPI, we get a little bit later. There isn't an urgency to raise interest rates. There is some space to be patient. The confusion is around the chairman. And the chairman continues to confuse and bewilder everyone in this market. I'm speaking for a lot of people I know. I'll speak for myself. It's confusing me. In October, he said rates are a long way from neutral. In November, he said he emphasized the estimate, the range of estimates for the neutral rate. He walked it back. December, he talked about the balance sheet runoff on autopilot, followed it up a couple of weeks later by pledging flexibility and patience. And then he speaks yesterday and says the balance sheet is going to be substantially smaller. John, why is the chairman seemingly all over the place? Um, so, you know, you get on a bicycle for the first time, takes a little time before you can take the training wheels off. Um, I think that if you look through what he has said and you take out the early October fireside chat with Judy Woodruff and that, that long way from neutral, I think he was trying to correct the impression yeah. for when the Fed took away some language in the Fed in, in the statement that said, well, is the Fed no longer accommodative? Do they see themselves at neutral? And say, right. no, no, we're a long way from neutral. I think the message that he's trying to convey is the following. I think he did a reasonably good job in his last two appearances doing it. We had a view the economy is going to grow fairly strongly this year. Markets have created a range of uncertainty around that view. You said it right. Inflation's reasonably low. So now the Fed can afford to be yeah. patient. So they're, they're, they're going to say, we've raised rates quite a bit. We're going to sit aside and see which scenario unfolds. Do, do you know that I've become a girl magnet here at Bloomberg because I have a Preston North End jersey hanging over <laughs> my chair? Women come by, they just stare at it in awe. Preston North End. What happened with, is it Doncaster? How do you pronounce it? Doncaster. Doncaster. What, how do you lose to a team like that? I mean, you hit the post, I get that, but how did this happen? Injuries. Injuries. 
Um, That's what Jay Powell is saying it. right I now. I did not. I just want to point this out to the listeners out there who are tired of hearing about my hometown love of Preston North End, no doubt. Um, uh, but uh, injuries. Uh, injuries. Can, what you explain, is, can you explain to our listeners what you're talking about? I'm talking about it was the third this cool round thing you of the FA about. Cup. <laughs> the FA Cup is different than Premier League against where the little guy can beat the big guy, right? Yeah. So what happened? Let's take the story forward. What happens this weekend in the FA Cup? I'm not sure who plays. Isn't it the league? The league games are back this weekend, right? So the FA Cup rounds are done, Tom. So the league games restart this weekend, as far as I know. Okay. So like they're back to like the normal TV football. Yeah. So tomorrow, um, Preston, I think, plays Swansea. Is that right? Yeah, we play back in the league tomorrow uh, because. Doncaster Rovers was the little team. See, that is the like, joy of the... So, yeah, that is the joy they have got. They knocked out the bigger team. Can I just there's explain? Some of, some of our listeners there's don't know Brexit, what's going on here. And this is like, this is like good UK The FA chat. Cup is a, is a football cup that goes back to the 1800s, which pretty much any football team in the UK can participate in. It's cool. It's very cool. So like minor league baseball could play the major leagues and basically beat, if, the, the if, the minor, if the minor league team got far enough, they could Triple end up A playing ball. the Yankees and, and go to Yankees. There, there we go. Yeah. See, I pulled it back to America, Rich. Congratulations. I did. <laughs> John Riding, thank you. Yeah, John Riding, thank you so much. But thank you for the Preston North End jersey. I just It just sits there on my Montreal Canadiens jersey and glows. This is a joy. We have Peter Hooper on a Friday with Deutsche Bank. He's going to publish this weekend. He's got a team of people, Torsten Slock and the others. Matthew Lozetti killing it with smart research. Young Lozetti. What's it like, Peter Hooper, to bring someone like Matthew Lozetti on? I mean, it keeps you young, right? Uh, 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 true joy. I mean, uh, I, I would have retired years ago if it wasn't for people like uh, Matt and Torsten to be working with. Wonderful guys, really bright fantastic research they, they do detailed research and again to the xyz chart you've got your new research note which is way advanced stuff and we don't do xyz charts uh, peter hooper on radio it doesn't work wait charts don't work on radio period but but peter hooper again it comes down to model building and our confidence in what we're doing let's start with the phillips curve theory uh, in, in all out of out of your Princeton, your Michigan as well. Are we still using the Phillips curve within our analysis? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's, it's central still. Um, you know, people are claiming it's dead. Uh, uh, the, the, the fact that inflation has failed to respond to an unemployment rate, which is approaching a percentage point, has been approaching a percentage point below Nehru, below full employment. Right very tight labor market. In the past, more distant past, this generated a lot of inflation. Uh, we've been there for a number of months now, um, and it hasn't, uh, not really a budge yet. So things are changing. There are, reasons for, there are reasons why things are changing, but there are also reasons why they haven't changed permanently, and it, this will spring back to life eventually. Okay, I want to take this on two themes. I knew what uh, Dr. Hooper's answer would be, folks, and it sets us up for an inflation discussion, and then I want to go to the broader American landscape. Peter, if I look at service sector inflation and goods inflation, the answer is service sector's been remarkably flat, positive, a normal number that all our listeners know. We've had goods deflation, but then a goods 
inflation pickup out of deflation. Can we sustain stability in goods prices or in an age of oversupply do goods prices roll over again? Well, you know, uh, one of the factors that I think was sort of compressing inflation over several decades was was uh, globalization, um, increasing supply chains, a lot of competition from abroad, yep. a huge increase in labor uh, into world production in China, et cetera. That's that's changing now. I mean, I, I think I think you, you are you are seeing the effects of uh, trade restriction, et cetera. Uh, potential tariff impacts, uh, the, the, the international compression on inflation beginning to shift, yeah. uh, and in a direction that means that prices eventually will be rising more in the goods sector. Um, uh, the dollar has uh, strengthened on average over the last year, and that, that's compressed uh, import prices, but uh, that won't go on indefinitely. Uh, the dollar will fall yeah. again at some point. Uh, and you will see you know, eventually goods inflation is going to come back more sustainably into positive territory. And I, I, I beg to differ a little bit. I think the underlying trend in services inflation is upward, health care, et cetera, uh, even rental inflation. we got some positives there today. Yeah, okay. Um, so so I, I, I do think that we are going to be moving at least modestly above the Fed's goal of 2%, right. not enough to cause major problems. Uh, but there are risks on that side. Peter Hooper, can you, or Vice Chairman Claret, as a front-right uh, macroeconomist, DSGE and all that, can you advise Chairman Powell in a gilded age? If we have the inequality we have in income and wealth, if we have the apparent beneficial effects of technology so different for rich and poor, can we use your knowledge in a gilded age, or do we make it up as we go? Well, you're, you're talking about an area that the Fed, unfortunately, really does not have much control over. It, it, Fair. it can deal with the macro economy. It cannot deal so much with the distribution effects. That's more in the realm of fiscal policy. That's uh, you know tax and, and, and transfer and and. Certainly, a lot more is needed in terms of uh, compensating those who lose jobs because of trade or technology. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that going on. We need more retraining. We need more, uh, you know, uh, to increase the flexibility of the U.S. labor force to deal with these uh, uh, challenges is is a major should be a high priority. Uh, we, we we need a better functioning government in Washington to get some of this done as well. What is the state of the American consumer? I guess I'm going over to Torsten Slack's uh, area here, but g give us an update on the Deutsche Bank feel on the American consumer. Consumers, I mean, look, the, the consumers are the engine of growth here. Uh, I mean, in, 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 in the presence of all this doom and gloom about slowdown globally, and there's been impressively weak numbers on uh, in manufacturing, so, uh, manufacturing around the world uh, of, of late, uh, the U.S. consumer is is really still the engine of growth uh the the, the strong labor market strong income growth uh, uh even with the recent correction in the stock market uh, household balance sheets are very strong there's been a lot of deleveraging there uh and and uh, uh we 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 uh, assuming we get the numbers uh, before too long, uh, I think you'll see the consumers are continuing to do reasonably well. One final question, uh, Dr. Hooper. What should the Fed do January 30th? I know we were data dependent. We've got a lot of data to go to get to January 30th. It's easy to pause, or should they shake things up with some drama? 
Well, what they should do and what they will do has been very clear in the speeches we got yesterday from the chair and vice chair. Uh, they're, they're, they're in wait-and-see mode. A lot of uncertainty going on around here, a lot, a lot of uh, risks that need to be resolved one way or another. Uh, I don't see them doing anything for quite a while. Peter Hooper, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank. Wonderful to have you for such an extended time uh, this morning. Can't say enough about the Deutsche Bank research through the year from Matthew Lozetti, Torsten Slack, Brendan Ryan, and the rest of their, Brent Ryan and the rest of their team as well. At the New York Stock Exchange, Mari Barra, and she is with our David Weston. On Bloomberg Television and Radio, we now welcome Mary Barra. She is the chairman, the CEO, and president of General Motors. Welcome to Bloomberg, Mary. Good Thank to have you. Thank you so much. Good to see you. So we've just heard the news about General Motors, uh, both respect to 19, uh, 2018 and 2019. I think surprising the upside. What happened? Well, I think this is a result of what we've been working on since the 2015 timeframe. You know, really working to transform the business, both the core business and also the investments we're making in the EV, AV, and connectivity. And we see all that coming to um, coming to fruition. We still have more work to do. That's why we made the difficult announcement we did uh, last uh, at the end of last year. But we are focused on this transformation, make sure General Motors is strong, and really uh, demonstrating that even in a cyclical business, we can cont continue, continue to deliver results. It's cyclical, it also is requiring a lot of investment right now as you go through this transformation to electric vehicles, to also autonomous vehicles. Are, will you be able to maintain the situation where you can get the money you need to invest by saving money elsewhere? Because your earnings per share are up, actually, despite all the investment. Well, absolutely, and we are investing. And one of the, the things that we did in this transformation is we're remixing our, our global product development. We've indicated that over the next few years we will double the amount of, that is spent in EV and AV, but that's not added to, that's transitioning to. And we've actually found a lot of synergies in not only how we engineer, but also from a capital perspective. You know, we've made a lot of investments in crossovers, full-size trucks, our global family of vehicles, and so that's going to pay off, and that's investment that we can continue to leverage as we go forward. So that's what's allowing us over the, the near term to take the uh, billion and a half out of our capital spend. So, so talk about electric vehicles for a moment. Yes. Uh, as I understand, you're going to have, I think it's 20 miles, no, 23 miles by 2020, is that? No, 20, 20 miles by 2023. Correct. Got it right. Uh, Cadillac now we know is going to be your lead. Why? Well, Cadillac is our technology brand, and when we look at the technology in addition to EV that we're going to put on this vehicle, it's appropriate that Cadillac is our is our lead brand, and then you know we'll we'll fill out the portfolio that makes sense and be customer driven. But it, and it also is part, a very important part of rebuilding Cadillac and demonstrating that Cadillac is a true luxury brand. Uh, again, delighting customers with the technology and the and the electric experience. How does this fit with what you're doing in Cruise? Because when we've talked to Dan Ammon, he said that by 2019. 19, this year, you will have some commercialized versions of autonomous vehicles. How does that fit with, for example, a Cadillac electric vehicle? Well, first of all, um, uh, we believe that all AVs, all autonomous vehicles, should be electric vehicles. And so that's a leveraging of the technology and the platform as well. We are working on the, the, the rate of iteration that we're demonstrating, and 
uh, we just posted a really cool video yesterday, so if you haven't seen it for crews and demonstrating how we continue to learn uh, new operations in the very dense and urban environment of San Francisco. So we will be gated by safety, and I think we've demonstrated in the past that we will make decisions to make sure our vehicles are safe as we demonstrated with uh, Super Cruise. But based on that rate of iteration, we're going as fast as we can, and we believe that we can take the driver out and uh, a ride uh, or a, um, a constrained environment and, uh, and and demonstrate our electric vehicle capability. Uh, in the meantime, besides announcing that Cadillac's going to be your lead in electric vehicles, you also have announced a new architecture, which will be for China and Brazil and Mexico, as I understand it, yes. not the United States. Tell us about that, why you're doing it. Well, if you look at um, really being customer driven, the customers in those markets, they want uh, the latest technology and they want uh, performance from safety, from connectivity. And so we step back and often those markets are served by older architectures. So we looked and said with the, the scale and the significant share we have in China, the strength that we have in South America and other markets like Mexico, let's do a dedicated uh, new architecture where we can really deliver something special to the customer. And so our, the feedback we've gotten, again, we'll uh, be sharing some of those vehicles today or an early glimpse of those vehicles. I think it's going to be very significant. And we start that rollout uh, uh, later this year in China and then it'll flow to South America, Mexico, and to over 40 countries. As I said, uh, this announcement is a bit of a surprise because it comes against a backdrop of some softness, at least perceived in the automobile uh, marketplace. Uh, we've had some announcements from some competitors about cutting back. Uh, we've had some announcements about uh, maybe some soft sales. How much of your projection in 2019, which is robust, how much of that is the overall size of the market and where the market is and how much of it is you taking market share and doing better? Well, I think, it, again, in the key markets, whether you look at China, the United States, South America, we think we're very well positioned. In the United States, we're going to have, we, we think the, the market will be in the low 17s. We have the full year of our new light duty trucks. We have the uh, the Cadillac XT4, we have the Chevrolet Blazer. Second half of the year, we're going to have our heavy duties. So we have an exceptionally strong product cadence building on our crossovers and our full-size trucks in North America. In China, we have 20 new or, or brand new or refreshed models that we'll be rolling out this year. And we think the market will be about the same. There's, I think, you know, pos positive news coming out of the trade talks. There's uh, talk in China about uh, stimulus from a durable durable goods perspective, so we see an opportunity there. And then in South America, we're starting to see some recovery, and, and South America is where we have a very strong Chevrolet franchise. So when you look at our key markets, we think uh, we're well positioned, not only with where we think the market's going to be, but also the strength of our product portfolio. You mentioned trade. Uh, way back in Q2, second quarter, you had to take down some projections based on concerns about tariffs, as I recall. Uh, as you look into 2019, are your projections based on status quo, on things getting better, on things getting worse? What are you projecting in order to come up with what your forecast is? We really looked at what we think, you know, the current macro environment um, and what we're seeing and what, you know, what out, outside uh, analysts are, are looking at from a, from a macro perspective and then looking and laying on where General Motors is positioned. And that is all built into the guidance that we provided. Uh, so you've had quite a year. This is your investor day. If you go all the way back 365 days ago, there's been a lot that's happened. I mean, certainly with crews, with investments from SoftBank, as well as from Honda, you've made some management changes where you took Dan Ammon from President GM, moved him over to Cruise, brought up uh, Mark Royce, also announced, as you said, a very fundamental restructuring, which will be difficult to implement. Is that the strategy, and from now on, is it execution, or is there more to be done on the strategy? It's both. We have to remain agile, because some of the, of the transformation that we're talking about with EVs and ABs, you know, it's, it's not like anyone knows exactly how that's going to play out. So we have to remain agile, we have to be quick, 
we have to be lean, so we've got to do both. We've got to execute exceptionally well, but we have to stay agile to, to take uh, twists and turns that are going to happen and seize opportunities. So with respect to electric vehicles, we hear about it a lot, but if you actually look at how many people are acquiring EVs, it's not that high, it's not that high a percentage. When is it coming? I mean, when are we there? Well, you know, I believe the customer is exceptionally rational. So if you look at China, you know, this will be, uh, because of some of the regulatory environment, you'll see, I think, it grow more quickly there. But one of the things we're focused on is if we can have a desirable, profitable, uh, appropriate range anxiety uh, from a range perspective so we don't have range anxiety, we think we can start to create the demand. So for us, we're not only working on the electric vehicle technology itself and the learning, all the learnings from Volt, the Chevrolet Volt and the Chevrolet Bolt, but we're also working on the infrastructure. We made an announcement that will allow us to have the largest uh, you know, charging infrastructure available to our customers. So it's, if you continue to solve customer perceived or real pain points with EV, we think that's really going to allow the, uh, the growth to occur. If you look at the industry overall, would we be where we are today with electric vehicles if Tesla had never existed? Did Tesla really spur this or was it going to happen anyway? You know, um, I, I think uh, when I look at EVs, you know, we've been in EVs since EV1 and, you know, in the Chevrolet Volt and really driving uh, to because we knew that technology was important. So I think there's been many important uh, players that have helped uh, from an electric vehicle, and I think you know there's even more coming now, so that's why uh, we have to be quick. Uh, what's the biggest risk you see to your uh, predictions for 2019 as you look forward? What is the thing that worries you, if anything? Well, again, I said our guidance is based on kind of the, the mm -hmm. look of, of the current macroeconomic state, which is not, it's not like it's, it's a complete glass, uh, you know, full or glass completely empty, but looking at that. So if something dramatic changes if there's a, a you know a very sudden shift then we'll have to reevaluate but I'm also confident on our in our team and how we're able to to seize opportunities and to really mitigate and offset some of the things we we faced in 18 and what we've been able to demonstrate okay Mary Barr chairman and CEO of General Motors thank you so much for being here David Weston uh, with us uh, this morning from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange with the chairman and CEO of uh, General Motors Mary Barr I am one who does not do a lot of look back books. They look back and their history and all that. But every once in a while, there's a ginormous exception. That is true of the 228 pages of the Fed in Lehman Brothers because it's not done by some crackpot. Lehman was wrong, the Fed was wrong, everybody's wrong, 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 wrong. And you go, yeah, but what do they know? Unfortunately, it's Lawrence Ball of the Johns Hopkins University. He's a first-class economist. Greg Mankiw, among others, up at Harvard, raves about the Fed and Lehman Brothers. Lawrence Ball, good morning. I found your 228 pages chilling and riveting. I want to cut right to the key chapter, which is that Lehman wasn't insolvent. How do you know that? Uh, well, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, the way we know Lehman's financial condition is there's actually a tremendous amount of evidence uh, gathered primarily by investigations by the bankruptcy examiner for the bankruptcy court and also congressional commission, which had subpoena power and got a lot of documents about Lehman's finances in real time. And uh, essentially, Lehman had stated um, in, in its financial statements, 
what its what its assets were worth and what its equity was, but we also have in real time estimates <clears throat> by uh, other financial institutions of how much they overvalued right. their assets, and and we can combine those to get a sense of okay. solvency. How do you respond to someone who says, "Okay, you're having a cup with a cup of coffee with Chairman Bernanke," and someone collegial says, "That's great, Professor Ball, but it's 2020 hindsight." How do you respond to that? criticism of the great 10-year look back? Well, I think I can answer that question on two levels. I think um, it, it is a little unfair with hindsight to say they should have done everything perfectly and measured everything perfectly at the time. Where I have more problem in a way with Fed officials uh, is not the fact that they, what they did then was not ideal. It's what they've said over the last 10 years. They've dug in their heels um, with a story saying that they didn't make any mistake, that there were legal impediments that made it impossible to rescue Lehman Brothers, uh, whereas we know with hindsight that that was not true. Professor Ball, uh, there are quotes that come from a variety of emails. I know that you have written about it, but I just want to offer a flavor of some of them where uh, former Secretary of uh, the Treasury uh, Paulson told people, quote, I can't do it again. I can't be Mr. Bailout. In addition, Secretary Paulson's chief of staff put the point, as you described it, bluntly. There was an email to Paulson's press secretary, quote, I just can't stomach us bailing out. Lehman will look horrible in the press, don't you think? Is this the right way to go about thinking about these crises? Well, I think that is the right interpretation, that, that it was a political decision made primarily by Treasury Secretary Paulson. I mean, it certainly is not how the decision should have been made. Uh, the decision should have been made uh, by the Federal Reserve based on uh, the costs that the Lehman bankruptcy was likely to do the, to the economy. And it's very, very unfortunate that political pressure um, is, is what drove the decision. Because didn't Lehman Brothers have collateral that would have served as the backstop for a loan from the Federal Reserve? Absolutely. That's really the central point of my book, is that Fed officials say there was no way we could legally lend the money yeah. because a loan legally requires collateral. They didn't have collateral. And to make a rather long story short, uh, there's detailed evidence that they did have plenty of collateral. Lawrence. So it, it, the collateral story is really just an excuse for what was actually a political decision. Lawrence Ball joining us at Johns Hopkins University, the Fed and Lehman Brothers setting the record straight on a financial disaster. Professor Ball, I interviewed Jean-Charles Rocher of Toulouse with his wonderful monograph, I'm going to say eight, nine years ago. Why are there so many banking crises? And he came back within a lot of mathiness, folks, to it's all about politics. What was the political calculus that good economists and treasury officials faced? What was the, the politics that were, they were wrapped around? I think the politics are really based on a misunderstanding. There's the term bailouts, which is a very unpopular term. And people have the impression that what happened with AIG and Bear Stearns and what could have happened with Lehman 
was the, the government giving away taxpayer money. And a lot of people resent the idea of giving away taxpayer money to Wall Street executives who get in trouble. The, the reality is that these aren't giveaways. We're talking about short-term loans that are very likely to be paid back, that have good collateral. So, so really, the economics of it is that these, uh, this kind of assistance by the Federal Reserve does not really have costs to the taxpayer, and it has a tremendous benefit in dampening financial crises. So, uh, but unfortunately, uh, politically, that, that message doesn't get through. Has that message gotten through to current lawmakers in the sense that Dodd-Frank places restrictions on Federal Reserve lending? Yes, I'm afraid that because of the unpopularity of bailouts, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act adds new restrictions um, uh, restricting what the Fed can do in lending money. So actually, if an exact replica of the Lehman crisis were to happen today, it arguably would actually be illegal for the Fed uh, to rescue the new Lehman because of the new legal restrictions, and uh, whereas they could have done it legally yeah. during uh, the actual crisis. And, and that's a big step in the wrong direction, I think, tying the Fed's hands well, in a crisis. You know, the ballet here in academics is we go back to Badgett and lender of last resort. I mean, Alan Meltzer, the late Alan Meltzer at Carnegie Mellon, went on and on about this within the history of the Fed. Did lender of last resort just fail here in the crucible of crisis? Yes, I think it's really as simple as that, that there was a, essentially a version of a bank run on Lehman Brothers. And going back to Badgett in the 19th century, the central purpose of a central bank is to provide liquidity, provide cash during a run like that and prevent um, an unnecessary calamity. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the Fed just didn't do that, again, I think, for political reasons. And again, yeah. since the bank bankruptcy, they've tried to give explanations for why they couldn't do it, but those just don't hold water. Yeah, this has been wonderful, Lawrence Ball. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.